Welcome to episode 14 of the Palestine Pod. We are joined by Palestinian-Dutch-American musician, activist Anwar Hadid, and Palestinian-Italian-American filmmaker Vin Arfuso. But the first thing that we learned from that incident is that even the civilians in Israel are super intertwined with the police force. Can you take us through how your family was expelled from Safed in Palestine? They literally like fled on a donkey. They could only take the things that they could carry on, on their back. So many like hardline conservatives, money from our government going to healthcare or whatever, but they have no problem yeah. sending it overseas. And these are the guys who were like, well, America first, you know, like they're so afraid of socialism and communism and just like insanely like xenophobic. Their entire mission is America first, except for Israel. Just in this last month, I've had over a dozen posts deleted entirely. The way I post on social media is the way rockets come out of Gaza, where it's like, we know some are gonna get shot down, right? <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to episode 14 of the Palestine Pod, the weekly podcast where we break down the latest headlines dealing with Palestine from all over the world and bring you stories, commentary, and interviews with the aim of spreading awareness about the Palestinian struggle for justice and equal rights. I'm one of your hosts, Lara E. You might know me from Instagram as at Girl, and I'm joined by my co-host, Mikey B. What's up, y'all? Mikey B on TikTok, Michael Scherzer on Instagram, and Mikey Intifada, if you saw them arrest Mona and Mohammed El-Kurd and thought, just another beautiful day in the only democracy in the Middle East. <laughs> yes. So before we get into today's episode, please like, comment, and subscribe if you hang out with us on YouTube. If you're listening on a podcast app, subscribe and leave a review if you can. As always, you can find our full episodes and sources listed at palestinepod.com. And if you want to get involved in the conversation, reach out to us at palestinepod at gmail.com and feel free to follow us on Instagram at the Palestine Pod. Today, we have a very special episode for you, so let's get right into it. We are joined by Palestinian-Dutch-American musician, entrepreneur, model, and activist Anwar Hadid, and Palestinian-Italian-American filmmaker Vin Arfuso. Anwar and Vin, welcome to the Palestine Pod. Thank you for having us. Having us, yeah. We're so happy to have you. Happy to be here. Anwar and Vin, you guys have been friends for a long time, and you recently got back from both of your first trips to Palestine in 2019. So Anwar, I'd like to start with you. Can you give us an impression of what that trip was like for you? What was it like to go back to Palestine for the first time? The first impression that I had, and I think that we all had, was kind of a feeling of privilege to, to be there. I think it was difficult for us in a way, just because it's a place that grandmother was not able to go back. My father, when I was younger, and would just kind of, he would teach us our history, but he also wanted us to go when we were older. I remember my friend Mustafa was saying that he has, you know, he has friends that aren't allowed to go visit the places that we were able to go to. Interesting and, and, and also beautiful. That was definitely the first thing that I think I felt when I, when I came there. It's interesting that you say that one of the first feelings that you had was that you were privileged to be there because in reality, your family was expelled from Palestine. You should have been there all along. I mean, if Mohammed Hadid was and and you know his parents were not expelled from Safad, you would have grown up in Palestine. I would have grown up in Palestine. And so, yeah. the idea that your first feeling was like, "I'm really privileged to be here," it's 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 kind of interesting because you should you should have been there all along. Exactly. It's just it's interesting. It's it's interesting, you know, being able to. We have American passports, you know, so even even with that, we were able to kind of... Did you have any trouble entering Palestine? Were you subject to 
questioning by intelligence? Were you taken to the side room? Were you strip searched? Did you have any of those experiences despite holding your American passport, which should be a, a sign of privilege in, uh, you know, when you arrive in Tel Aviv? Definitely. We were not able to carry on electronics on the plane to, to Tel Aviv. So like my computer, all this type of stuff, my, my any, any charger, any, anything except for my phone, basically, that had batteries of any sort, I had to go through like a different inspection throughout the plane. I remember me and Vin were sitting on the plane next to each other and we see, we look to the left and there's a man that's, that's like using a, a computer and has like probably four different chargers plugged in and, and he was like, charging his tesla he had like yeah, every single thing possible to charge we weren't even allowed to carry receipts <laughs> <laughs> but that was like that was one thing and then we got there we were interrogated before and, and after but it was crazy it was almost like when we got there we felt like they already knew that we were we were coming had a plan for us like for what they were about to do with us with our names they all ordered tickets separately and they put us all together but it, it was worse leaving JFK than it was landing in, in Tel Aviv. Because the first time that we, we landed in Tel Aviv, they actually like took really good care of us. I think because, you know, half of the activism my friend does, it's like if they didn't, they'd be proving his point. But before leaving JFK, it was like they took him and I and left us in a room for like an hour, like actually held the plane up, stripped us of everything. I had a cast on my hand at the time. And they were like, if the wand makes a sound, you're not going to get on the flight. And I was like, well, then you could just take it off of me and I'll get a new cast when I land. But they yeah, said it, if the wand makes a sound, we're shooting. Yeah. <laughs> what about Anwar, the way out? So in my experience, leaving Palestine is always has been more difficult than actually even arriving. That's when I was strip searched. That's when I was I had all of the contents of my luggage and all of my personal items completely exposed and emptied out in front of me and they picked up everything they picked up even a palestinian dress that i had purchased from palestine with the embroidery on it and they started you know holding it up to each other the the soldiers and making fun of it and it was really demeaning and demoralizing meanwhile i'm getting taken into a separate room getting strip searched they're putting my underwear through an x-ray machine you know just in case i don't know what they thought i was hiding within the <laughs> You know, within the lining of my underwear, I have no clue, but this is what they do. So did you guys have a worse experience leaving or was it about the same? Um, I think that we, we, we had a very similar experience. We had like posters and stuff that we had brought back and they looked through our posters. They looked through all of our bags. They held us up at both sides. They crumpled um, my posters. Yeah they, <laughs> yeah, they basically went through our bags, like rummaged through them, basically threw everything around at the airport. It just kind of shows they kind of push people in a, in a direction to be fearful and to be cautious before you even get there. It's just interesting. It's well, interesting. We definitely went through the same thing. That's one way to put it. I mean, I would, I would call it a grave violation of human rights, but it is that's interesting. <laughs> obviously, I, I would feel the same way. It's interesting from the perspective of a prosecutor at the International Criminal Court. <laughs> yes. One of the things that you immediately sense when you arrive in Palestine is the injustice. It, it's very palpable. Right upon landing, I mean, you immediately see that there's categories everywhere, wherever you go. If you're a Jewish Israeli, you're treated one way. And if you're, if you're a Palestinian, uh, you know, depending on which type of Palestinian they've categorized you into, right? So if you're a Palestinian from the West Bank, if you're a Palestinian from occupied Jerusalem, if you're a Palestinian from 48, if you're a Palestinian like you and I 
from exile, you're subject to different treatment based on where you're from and the category that Israel has placed you into. Not because these categories exist naturally in any way. They never existed before 1948. We were all Palestinians and we were all just living our lives in Palestine. But since 1948, Israel has created five or more different categories of Palestinians based on you know the physical boundaries that they inhabit and also based on the fact that, well, once... Israel expelled us, well, we were considered no longer their problem and we just simply weren't ever allowed to return, which is, of course, a violation of our international legal right to return. Can you give us a sense on where, what were you most struck by in terms of seeing the injustice? You know, was it the checkpoints? Was it the Palestinian and Jewish separated roads? I mean, what in terms of injustice did you see that you were like, whoa, this is, mm. this is intense? Yeah, the first thing, I mean, the first thing that happened is we, we got, besides getting at the airport, the first, we got into a cab and the first thing we said is that we're going to, uh, we're going to Jericho and the cab driver told us that's where the animals live. So that was, that was the first piece I felt that was injustice where we all like literally were just like, yo, what the fuck? Like we were not even expecting that. Yeah, I, th- I think the guy just thought we were like Americans and we had the wrong address. Seriously. <laughs> Facts. He did. He's like, he was like, wait, what? Like the, he's like, you know, that's where they end. It's very dangerous. And then basically he like pulled it. That, pulled the that cops. The walls, the cops. And, and but the first thing that we learned from that incident is that even the civilians in Israel are super intertwined with the police force. Because before he even dropped us off, he pulled over behind a, a police car and, and asked the police to identify us and to make sure that we're like okay and safe. Yeah, the secret police, they are very intertwined with civilians and settlers. The IDF work hand in hand with the settlers. It's all one and the same. And it, as a Jew, is very reminiscent of Nazi Germany, where they wanted you to report your neighbors, see something, say something, that type of thing. Yeah, I mean, let's not forget, it's a country of soldiers. They have this program, this conscription uh, program, where... If you're a woman, if you're a man, the second you turn 18, you're going to serve in the military. And it may be two years, it may be three years, but you're, it's, it's obligatory, right? And if you don't do it, you go to jail. If you don't do it and you say, hey, I don't actually believe in apartheid. I don't believe in a, you know occupation. I actually don't want to spend two or three years of my life oppressing and, act, and, and participating in this foreign occupation. Uh, army, well, then you go to prison. I mean, this is what happens. And these people are called refuseniks who refuse to serve in the mandatory army service. And so, yes, it's all intertwined. You know, the intelligence services, the Shin Beit, the Mossad, the IDF, all of it is working hand in hand. And all of it is made of the civilians themselves. They're they're really inseparable because when almost 100% of Jewish Israelis are serving in the army, how do you make the distinction between the army and a civilian. You look in the mirror. <laughs> Do you have anything else you want to share on where like bits or anecdotes? I mean, just obviously the, the huge walls also <laughs> right coming in. There's just certain things that I felt were obvious. The way that the walls were built were to block out the views of, of Palestinians. And I just like, I just felt like very sad. It's just, it's, it's interesting that people don't instantly see that, you know? I don't understand how people can like, be partying on the beach like 15 minutes away when, when, when it, there's things like that. You put your finger on something, which is the apartheid wall. And, you know, not only was the apartheid wall constructed in such a way as to very cruelly block 
the view of Palestine from many of the Palestinian families who live in the occupied West Bank, but also it's more nefarious than that. I mean, the route of the apartheid wall is actually very strategic. It's not on the internationally recognized green line. It's actually mostly constructed on the inside of that border, meaning that what it essentially does is it acts as a way to steal more Palestinian land and place it on the other side of the wall. We talked last week on the show about the city of Bilain, the occupied city of Bilain in the West Bank, where the villagers have been protesting every single week for years now, because the apartheid wall that cut through their village actually place their farmland on the other side of the wall, meaning that their houses are on one side, their farmland is on the other, and their farmland was taken in order to allow for the expansion of the illegal Israeli settlement of Modim elite. So basically, the apartheid wall is a tool for land theft, and it's a tool for the expansion of the illegal settlements. And as we've always mentioned on this program, this wall was declared illegal, and Israel has yet to dismantle it. Anwar, I want to ask you to give us a little bit of a background into the story of the Hadid family. A lot of people know this story. Your, your father is very active on social media, posting and and reminding us, you know, who his parents were, where they came from. For those of our listeners, perhaps, who, who don't know the story of the Hadid family, can you take us through how your family was expelled from Safed in Palestine and, and how your grandparents and your, your father became stateless refugees until the point where you ended up in the U.S.? Yeah, I could, I could bring you through a brief summary. I wouldn't do it as much justice as my father, I, I don't think. Yeah. My father's father's side, the, the Hadid, were from Safar. Then his mother's side, Daher, was from Nazareth. My family had like houses and, and basically like quarters in, in both places. But once they let in uh, refugees after World War II into their homes, and months later, they were expelled from their homes. And the people that uh, they let into their house uh, took the keys and took their homes and they were separated. My grandfather and my grandmother, and they had to leave. They first went to a refugee camp outside of Palestine. And then they went to, to Jordan and then Lebanon and Syria. And basically kept traveling, I think, to Greece and then to Washington and then ended up here, you know, in, in Los Angeles. They literally like fled on a donkey, you know, like my dad always tells, tells me stories about that. And uh, and they could only take the things that they could carry on, on their backs. You know, obviously like the Zionist, uh, like occupation forces, I guess, in the early stages. It was like when they uh, basically started to, to expel people from their homes. And Yeah, I've, I've seen your father post about how they actually let refugees move into their house and mm-hmm. months later those refugees literally took their homes when your family was expelled from Safed and Nazareth, which is insane. Truly um, insane. It's insane. I had not heard that and am very upset by that. Let somebody into your house, right? You show them compassion in a time of weakness when you need help and then you turn around and you make somebody a refugee. There's a lot of trauma. It just shows that at one point, without the control of Zionism, people could have lived together in peace. Many people were brainwashed by Zionist propaganda. They utilized Jewish trauma after World War II and weaponized it against Palestinians. There you go. 
Yeah, and I think it's really important to remember that pre-1948, Jews, Muslims, Christians lived in the land of Palestine peacefully. And it was only with the arrival of you know, this ideology of Zionism, which requires the ethnic cleansing of the native Palestinian. There is no other way around it. You know, people try to change the definition of Zionism, talk about what Zionism means to them. And these are completely disingenuous conversations, because the reality is, is that if you want to set up a Jewish state on a piece of land where the majority of the population is not Jewish, the only way you will be able to achieve that goal is through ethnic cleansing, dispossessing those people who live on that land of their homes and replacing them, right? Zionism necessitates expulsion and replacement. And that's exactly what the, the implementation of the Zionist project in Palestine since 1948 has been doing. They've been replacing us ever since 1948. And all of their policies today that exist until today, whether it be uprooting our olive trees, whether it be demolishing our houses, whether it be expanding Jewish settlements, whether it be locking us up, making us political prisoners, if we dare speak out or if we dare resist, like what they did today, just you know, earlier this morning with Muna and Muhammad al-Kurd, who have been arrested yet again because they are telling the world what is happening to them. And they are telling the story of the expulsion of Palestinians from Sheikh Jarrah, which is a neighborhood in occupied East Jerusalem, which Israel has absolutely no claim to. Nobody in the world recognizes Israel's presence in East Jerusalem. They are a foreign illegal occupier. And the only solution to that occupation is withdrawal, immediate withdrawal. And Palestinians have been waiting now for 54 years for Israel to withdraw from the occupied West Bank, from occupied Jerusalem, from Gaza. And not only have they not withdrawn, but their techniques and their methods of occupation have simply evolved. You know, so in Gaza, yeah, they've removed the ground forces, but they continue to control everything in Gaza, land, you know, sea and and air. Right. And, you know, international legal scholars write about this all the time. The occupation never ended in Gaza. It simply changed forms. So. It's really, really important for us to keep in mind that Palestine before Zionism was multicultural. Palestine before Zionism was multi-religious. Palestine, with the arrival of Zionism, demanded and necessitated the ethnic cleansing of the Palestinian in order for the Zionist project to succeed. Because the Zionist project demands the creation of a Jewish state on land where the majority of people who lived there prior to you know, their expulsion were not Jewish. So the only way that you can carry out this goal of creating a Jewish state is to get rid of the majority of people who were already living there and had been already living there for thousands of years, like your family, like my family. Some of the Zionist propaganda is that there were no, there was nobody there, right? It was completely empty. But then they also say Jews were there the whole time, guys. You know what I'm saying? It doesn't make sense. You got to pick one. It cannot be both. Either nobody was there, in which case Jews were not there, or somebody was there, in which case some Jews were there, but mostly it was Muslims and Christians. So, uh, Anwar, I want to ask you about your own awakening the path that you kind of took to becoming the activist that you are today. You're very active on social media, uplifting voices from on the ground. You share content related to Palestinian liberation. I saw you earlier this month on a panel alongside many other activists, including Mohammed al-Kurd, who is currently resisting the planned expulsion of his family from occupied Sheikh Jarrah and the infamous Dr. Angela Davis. Uh, I think the panel was on Black Palestinian Solidarity. So what are some of your 
earliest memories of being a Palestinian? And when did you kind of realize like, oh shit, we, we kind of went through something and I, I'm deciding today to be an activist. And I say decide simply because I feel like at some point we all made that decision where we're going to use our voice and we're not going to back down and we're not going to you know, lay down and die in the face of this injustice. You know, we have an obligation. We have so much more freedom and so much more ability to, to really express ourselves and have people listen and to also share and to create rooms to have conversations and create things like that. I think the first thing that made me truly realize, I saw the reality of Palestinians, our identity being dehumanized. Yeah. The first thing that really like struck me was also the identity was, was also suppressed for a long time. There's so many spaces in the world where it, it was almost like hard to be Palestinian, you know? So you have to kind of like, uh, you have to build that courage up. And, I, and, and the first thing that hit me personally, you know, was almost like, wait, what the fuck? Like, excuse my language. That's uh, no, okay. You can swear on the bus. Why do I feel this thing of like, whenever I talk about my, my family to people to even in school, you know, it was almost like people would like, kind of like, look at me crazy. I didn't realize at the time. Yeah. Like being Palestinian in and of itself is a political statement. Yeah. Being Palestinian saying, asserting you are Palestinian. You're absolutely right on where you're, 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 you know, you, you've highlighted something really key, which is that every time I say I'm Palestinian, that in and of itself is an act of resistance because what I'm doing is by asserting the fact that I'm Palestinian and saying, yeah, my family is from Gaza and Yaffa. I am um, a Palestinian. We were there for hundreds and hundreds of years. What I am doing is I am directly contradicting and directly rebutting and directly undermining the Zionist narrative, which says that we don't exist. We weren't there. You know, if, if we did exist and if we were there, well, we just came from Jordan. So we can just go back to Jordan. It's like, no, what are you talking about? My family and my lineage is from Gaza and Yaffa. That's where they've always been. Those are the only references culturally that I have in my family. And the only reason that I'm not there today is because my family was expelled and prevented from coming back to Palestine in violation of our rights under international law. And yeah, this is a huge problem and it makes people uncomfortable. So when you say you're Palestinian in a, in, a, in a public arena, which has been dominated for so long by this pro-Zionist narrative, people suddenly don't know what to do with you. It's like, mm. ooh, okay, yeah, he's Palestinian, you know? So that, I've had people tell me just in response to me saying I'm Palestinian that they don't want to talk about politics. It's like, whoa, 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 I just said I'm Palestinian. What are you talking about? Like, Literally, last night I was in a conversation with somebody who is an Israeli and some random white guy butted in and it was like, we're not going to we're not going to get into this, guys. We're not going to talk about it. And he and I just both looked at him and we're like, what the fuck? It was like a report from the BBC where they don't actually say anything, but they're just updating you that they don't want to talk about it. Anyways, we ended up talking about it. And it was, I would say, a productive conversation because I got the guy to admit that all the settlers from 67 and on should go, right? He said that everything in the West Bank is wrong, willing to do land transfer or whatever. You know, he called it one for one. I was like, the whole thing's theirs. Yeah. <laughs> he, but, but, but what happened is it's interesting because he could not make the connection that like everybody has to go. If 67 has to go, so does 48, right? What What is the distinction between starting the line of justice at 67, right? If a Palestinian home belongs to the Palestinian in 67, so it does 48. Yeah, It doesn't make any sense. They just sort of want to start the clock late. 
Yeah, for sure. And I mean, look, take it, you know, for example, Anwar's family, they were expelled from 48, right? And, you know, my family was unable to go back to Gaza, which is part of 67, but also I have lineage from Yaffa, which is part of 48. So they can try to start the clock wherever they want. But the fact of the matter is there are 8 million Palestinian refugees today out of a global population of 13 million. And those Palestinian refugees trace their lineage to all over historic Palestine. We were everywhere. And the only just solution to this colonial violence that we have been experiencing since 1948 is to let all of us go back to where we were expelled from if we choose to do so, if we choose to exercise our right of return. Vin, I want to bring you into the conversation. Your family is also from 48 territories. They were ethnically cleansed from Haifa in 1948. Can you share with us what your family story was like and how you know they went from being expelled from Haifa to eventually arriving in the United States? I don't know if they went on a donkey like my friend. Yeah, my grandfather's family was initially from Nazareth and uh, my grandmother from Haifa, but they were both in Haifa at the time. And I just remember my grandmother telling me like she was young and just all, all she remembered was just like tanks and soldiers and everybody that she knew just like packing up and leaving and seeing other people from Europe going into the houses and taking the homes. And then, you know, they went to Lebanon and lived in a refugee camp for a while. And Lebanese citizens didn't really want Palestinian refugees to become citizens of their countries, you know, kind of reminiscent of like here in America. You know, they were expelled from their homes in Palestine, not really accepted in Lebanon, and went from being citizens of a country to having refugee status. And I think my grandfather got a job for a U.S. Navy base, like doing handiwork and engineer work. And then uh, eventually they were able to apply and and come to America and they were accepted and, and came over to America. But for, for years, it was like this constant battle of just like we were once citizens and accepted somewhere to even going to an Arab country and not being accepted there either because of, you know, just like their own nationalistic issues in that country. Yeah, for sure. So for every Zionist who thinks that we can just, uh, oh, we can just go to Jordan or just go to Lebanon, you're Arab. Yeah, they don't really Arabs. want them either. You're all Arabs. No, it's like, we're from Palestine. You know, we're from Palestine. We shouldn't go anywhere but Palestine. That's where we're from. You know, this notion that, oh, well, we can just go into any Arab country. And, uh, you know, why don't we just let all these Jewish people come from all over the world, like, you know, settler Jacob from Long Island to settle in Palestine. How dare we not allow this? We can just go live in any other Arab country. The Zionists love to say, oh, the Arabs have 20 some countries. It's like, no, Palestine doesn't have any country because you stole Palestine. And that's the issue here, you know, trying to lump us in and make us a part of some sort of a homogenous Arab group and then say that, well, it makes perfect sense for a family from Haifa to just pick up and leave and go somewhere else. You stole our houses. Like, what are we even talking about here? You stole our houses and you're living in them. And as I always say, you didn't even change the furniture. So what are we talking about here? That's the injustice that needs to be corrected. And it doesn't get to be corrected by just telling us to go move to Jordan. Yeah, a Palestinian could show up with their land deed and be like, yeah, settlers got to go, right? And they'd be like, no, what about the family that lives here? And then at the same time, they're like, ah, go find some place in Jordan to live. The only like justification I feel like they have is the deep historic ties. It's like, well, we were here, you know. Nah, we don't fuck with that here, bro. How do you know who you're related to 2,000 years ago? Let me tell you something. I'm Jewish, and you cannot trace my lineage back to Palestine. Straight up, fam. I can trace my lineage eight generations. I have paperwork and everything. It is Poland, Lithuania, Eastern Europe. Nowhere in my lineage does it say Palestine, fam. The Zionists will 
rely on Jewish presence in Palestine 2,000 years ago as a means to create an exclusive right for them to go live in Palestine. It is the intellectual equivalent of me saying that Muslims used to be in Spain, so I'm going to roll through southern mm -hmm. Spain and expel every Spanish person there because my people were there 800 years ago. It doesn't make any fucking sense. And See you're going mean? to pull up with guns. Palestinians are not settlers. Palestinians are on their own land. Because we, what, what we are actually able to show is that Palestinians themselves are the descendants of those people that the Zionists claim to be the descendants of. Mm -hmm. Palestinians are the Jews that eventually, with time, converted to Christianity and eventually, with time, converted to Islam during the arrival of Islam. So the whole notion that they would need to correct some historical wrong by rolling up from Long Island and expelling the person who's there today, it's absolutely baseless. It's ahistorical. It doesn't exist. Like We are the people of the land. We have been there for thousands of years. That's, that's the issue. That's what we're talking about. And what they try to do is they try to isolate a moment in time where Jewish people were in Palestine and then say, that that allows anybody from all over the world who claims to be a you know Jewish today, uh, to... uh, uh, unless you're from Africa, <laughs> right? What they're trying to do is fill the settlements, and like the settlements right now, they keep building them at these like astronomical rates. They want to create these facts on the ground that erase any sign of Palestinian civilization. They make it look like we simply weren't there. Look what they're doing right now with Lifta. Lifta is a Palestinian village, the ruins of which have somehow still been preserved, unlike the over 500 Palestinian cities and villages which were destroyed during the Nakba, right? Lift and now the Zionists are like, yeah, we got to get rid of that. That doesn't look good for us. They want to erase the facts on the ground. They want to erase our cities and villages. And they've been doing it ever since 1948. They've been covering them up with trees via the Jewish National Fund's Plant a Tree in Israel program. I have stood in 48 and I have seen forests with my own eyes that pre-1948 were Palestinian cities and villages. Okay, the, the, the example that comes to mind is the Palestinian village of Safuria, which was entirely covered by trees after the Zionist militias raised it to the ground. Right. And today you don't even know where it is. And you wouldn't know if there wasn't a local guide to tell you there used to be Safuria here. Here's some pre-1948 pictures. But by the way, right now it's just covered with a bunch of trees that the Jewish National Fund planted. Right. So that's that's what we're talking about. There, There is no logical basis for a claim that says, oh, because Muslims were in southern Spain 800 years ago, I'm a Muslim. So I guess that means I'm from southern Spain. And I guess it means that Spanish people are not. You know, that just doesn't make sense. And that's exactly the same analogy that Malcolm X gave in his article, Zionist Logic, when he when he breaks down Zionism and he says this doesn't make any sense whatsoever. People don't realize, too, that even before World War II, how many Jews were victims of like the paramilitary groups, Ergon, Leahy, like when they were trying to start the Zionist project, like they blew up hotels, roadways, buses, all, and, and a lot of Jews died in the in the name of creating the Jewish state. And the Jewish agencies at the time denounced this. They had, they wanted nothing to do with it. And that was, they were doing that in order to rid the British out. But how many Jews and how many, of course, Arabs were, were victimized in even the creation of the state of Israel. They were doing these things because of like King David Hotel, the train stations, the, the movie theaters, the, the, you know, all, it was like the first time terrorist attacks happened in Palestine, in the Holy Land. They weren't used to that and then, you know, in the early 1900s, out of nowhere, these European groups started blowing everything up and were killing Jews as well. Yeah. And the British were like, we're getting the fuck out yeah, of there. Yeah, that's why they left. No one Y'all can it. figure yeah. it out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Michael, you have uh, posted about this guy that one of the first victims of Zionism was an anti-Zionist Jew. 
a guy named Jacob de Haan. He was a Dutch poet. He immigrated from the Netherlands. And he said at the time, he was like, I'm going to Palestine. My life will be drastically different because I am a famous poet here, which flex. You know what I mean? You love to see it. And then he was talking about how he was going to build the land, build community. And he ended up doing that. He became a staple of the Haredi community. He practiced Judaism in Jerusalem and was assassinated by the Haganah, the early Zionist militia, because he was headed to London to speak out against the establishment of the Zionist state. Yeah, look, I mean, it's very clear that for any Zionist, when Palestinians and Jews come together and say, we are fundamentally anti-Zionist, there is no exclusive right to create a Jewish state on a land which was fundamentally not Jewish prior to the expulsion of the native population, uh, it's very, very threatening for them. It's very threatening. What Michael and I do is extremely threatening for them because we're saying we're Palestinian and a Jew, and we are fundamentally anti-Zionist as a Palestinian for obvious reasons, because it leads to the expulsion of my people from the land where we are from. I'm especially dangerous because they train me to be one of them, right? I went through all of the brainwashing programs. I went through all of those circles of influence where I saw what could happen if you speak out. I saw people lose businesses. I saw people get ostracized from their families. I saw people lose things in their life that matter to them because of the Zionist aggressive surveillance state. And I came out the other side. And so now I know all of their arguments. Nothing that they say ever surprises me. I can combat them using their own scripture. I want to get a little bit into U.S. politics. So last week, Lindsey Graham announced that Israel would be requesting yet another $1 billion from the U.S. There's no indication as to whether or not this has been approved. We know that apparently Benny Gantz showed up in the U.S. on Thursday to basically, you know, extend his hand and ask for an additional $1 billion. Now, this, of course, is on top of the $3.8 billion that we give Israel each year. Apparently, that's not enough, even though Israel is the uh, world's largest recipient of U.S. foreign aid, not to mention the 735 million U.S. dollar arms sale that was also approved in the immediate aftermath of the latest genocide in Gaza, despite congressional attempts to have a conversation about whether or not it was really a good idea to be selling arms to Israel in the aftermath of, of, of a genocide. Which That's in addition to the 500 million that was passed right after the coronavirus stimulus. Oh, yeah, that's right. I forgot about that. Anyway, so come on, uh, (laughs) they're out here raking in dough. As of 2020, 31 million Americans have no health insurance. It's been reported that also due to the effects of the coronavirus pandemic, more than 42 million people in the U.S. um, are likely experiencing food insecurity, including 13 million children. So Americans are, you know, a good number of us are going to sleep hungry and we don't have health insurance. Obviously, in both cases, people of color are disproportionately affected. It goes without saying that this money is needed in the U.S. Then give us your impression. What do you think about all of this? Sucks. One of the things I feel like not a lot of people talk about is that how much of that 3.8 billion, like the military, strictly the military aid, is spent on American weapons. Boeing, Smith and Wesson, Lockheed, Raytheon. They're actually the beneficiary of that. It's it's clearly just a a group of people in control who are just benefiting and like benefiting off wars, contracts, or just weapon contracts. And uh, with regard to everything here, yeah, 
I, I don't believe in any foreign aid. I mean, in certain aspects, like it's good to help, but clearly America being the world police hasn't worked out. We've just kind of gone everywhere and wreaked havoc and wrecked everything. And yeah, while people don't have health care, uh, loan debt, there, there's a million things that it could be. It should just, you know, I, I don't, I'm not an economist. I don't know exactly where that money should or could go, but I know that it's what way better suited in America for the citizens who it's their money. It's not, it's not the politician's money. It's not the country's money. It's our money. Like that's people forget that that's the foundation of what the tax system is. It's supposed to, you know, we work so that the taxes can go to the government and then the people who are supposed to work for us redistribute it to us to better, better our lives. But, you know, we pay for, we help fund Israel's universal health care. We, you know, their military aid. Like, it's not just military aid. We give them money for everything. And there's even a lot of Israelis who say, like, get us off welfare. Like, we're a thriving economy. We don't need your money. Like, there's a great book on the subject by John Perkins called Confessions of an Economic Hitman. And he talks about how the United States since World War II has gone around giving loans to various developing countries in order to assert themselves internationally, right? These countries then become dependent upon U.S. foreign aid. They can't pay it back sometimes. They have to go bankrupt. They have to sell some of the mineral resources of the country. Or the United States just comes in and bombs the shit out of them and does it anyways, right? Doesn't even give them the option to play the game economically. They just say, hey, we're here. We're mining your shit, actually. (laughs) that's happening right now with the United States occupying one third of Syria, right? Which is what's happening right now. They tried to coup Bolivia. It's what's happening right now in, you know, Colombia. Like it's, it's all, which is Colombia is a U.S. backed dictatorship, but they're still trying to like mine resources. And that's the reason that people are rising up right now because they're not seeing any of the wealth that their country is generating for the West, right? These people are doing backbreaking, could be called slave labor, and they are still impoverished. Meanwhile, it's like, you know, Ted Cruz is headed to Cancun. Ted Cruz was also in Israel. I don't know if you saw that. He was I did. checking out the damage of the Hamas rocket. He's so weird. It looks like he ran through that wall. Yeah, he did. I, he's, he's a weirdo. Huh? He's he so busted weird. like the Kool-Aid oh. man. Do you think that asking for the additional $1 billion could be kind of like the uh, publicity stunt they did with annexing the West Bank this summer where they're like, we're going to take the whole thing. And then they went, oh, you know what? Never mind. Like, we won't take the whole thing. So everyone, oh, whew, good, good. You know, that was close. But they still just take pieces and pieces. Yeah. So, like, I feel like they might because they're getting uh, a lot of criticism for the – billion and the additional 735 million, they might say, you know what, let's ask for another billion. And then Congress will be like, you know, it's too much. And we'll go, oh, see, it's they don't give them that much. But then two weeks later, we won't find out they got 700 million instead. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, it's a classic negotiating tactic. But beyond even a negotiating tactic, this is a like a very, very classic Zionist tactic. They did this with the annexation. They created a ruckus about de jure annexation last summer. Oh, we're going to take all of the West Bank. And you know, the reality is, is under international law, their um, they have it. Their presence in in the West Bank for the last fifty four years satisfies all of the conditions of a de facto annexation. So they don't even need the de jure annexation. What's the point? You know, they don't need it in any event because they already control everything. Palestinians can't take any decisions to control their own lives, you know, and go about their business without encountering at every step of the way, Israeli military occupation, 
right? I think you're absolutely right, Vin. This might be one of those things where it's like, oh, never mind. Actually, we'll we'll just keep the 3.8 billion. No, no worries. You know, we'll see. We'll see how it turns out. Like we don't know. Right now, we still don't know. We know that it's been asked for. Lindsey Graham made some really weird. He's also a super weird guy. Weird. He made some Creep. really weird statements talking about, I'm going to make sure I'm going to do everything I can to get Israel this money, you know? And it's just like, ugh, gross. Don't you have anything better to do? Like anything? I just don't understand too how like so many like hardline conservatives, like even just civilians, like people, American citizens would back that and freak out just at the idea of even a little bit of money from our government going to healthcare or whatever, but they have no problem. Yeah sending it overseas and these are the guys who are like well america first you know like they're so afraid of socialism and communism and just like insanely like xenophobic their entire mission is america first except for israel i'm seeing people even on social media who are right-leaning like fighting as hard as they can for israel on behalf of america yeah. and like a lot of their heroes like you, there's people right now from that side posting about how Rand paul like smashed doc, dr fauci and single-handedly ended COVID. they have no idea that Rand paul has been like one of the biggest proponents for ending all military aid to israel so it's like do you guys read about the people you like or yeah i mean i think part of your answer is that a lot of these extreme right people in the U.S. are also evangelical Christians. And you know very well that the evangelical Christian community is very pro-Israel, not because they love Jewish people, actually because they hate Jewish people. Yeah, they hate them. It's a highly anti-Semitic movement. Pastor John Hagee has a congregation of like something like 5 million followers. And, you know, they believe- 90. His uh, services are streamed to 90 million homes. Some of them are in Brazil because oh, okay. that's where they like, outside, that's where they convert the people. Yeah, yeah. No, but even the, uh, there's there's- I think 85 million evangelicals in this country. And that's why they're like 25% of the voting block. So that's why even when Trump was running, he was like, yeah, I love church. Church is my favorite thing in the whole world. Like, he, like he's like the least Christian person probably on the face of the planet. But that it's like, you know, you have to placate to these voters because that's a huge issue. And it's a huge issue to them because they really truly believe that once Israel's fully Jewish and they knock down Al-Aqsa and they build, rebuild the third temple, that that's when Christ comes back. But yeah. if they care so much about Jewish people, like no one talks about in this fairy tale that they believe in that two thirds of Jews die and the remaining one third have to convert to Christianity. So it's like you're supporting the entire wiping out of Jewish people everywhere. And that's why like they want them all there. Like they, the, the Aliyah, all these things, they, they fund it. Like evangelicals, Fund, help fund the settlements, have fun sending them on these trips to, to go. They want them. They don't want them in America. That's the thing. Everyone thinks it's a really like heartfelt mission, but it's it's actually disgusting because they don't want them in America. Like, well, you should be in Israel. Like they see a Jewish person text like, what are you doing here? You're supposed to be in Israel. Yeah. They're like rapture pornographers. Like they cannot wait Yo, for it crazy. to happen. And uh, I read an article written by evangelical Mike Evans and this dude is a super duper fucking weirdo. He called Israel's political theater a striptease. <laughs> and I just want to read you all some of the quotes that I pulled from this guy. Also, by the way, the idea of all most Jews being raptured is the reason that Zionism was not super popular among Jews before 1940s. Well, Theodore uh, Herzl wrote in his diary that the conversion, the uh, solution to the Jewish problem was conversion to Christianity. So this is the guy, this is like their George Washington. He said that the solution to the Jewish problem is conversion to Christianity. So it's like, that's your guy. The crossover between Nazis and Zionists is a full circle. They, okay. they pinned a coin. Yeah. 
So anyways, this weirdo Mike Evans, he wrote, I told my wife when I married her that there was another woman in my life. I had to be with her a lot. Her name was Israel. And she said, that's fine. I'm fucking some guy named Mark. Okay. She didn't actually say that. I wrote that as a joke. (laughs) He did write, I've always been thrilled and proud of this beautiful, attractive, seductress princess Israel. But right now, I'm not. I'm horrified. I'm seeing a display that is nauseous. It's sickening for me as a person who has devoted 50 years of my life to build support for the state of Israel. How shameful this seduction is. I can smell the ashes of Auschwitz and see the blood of the multitude of souls who gave their lives to birth the Jewish state. As a Jew who has family who was murdered in the Holocaust, I would like to be the first to say super duper fuck you. What are you doing? But I also want to say this is what happens when Zionists, Jewish Zionists, spend the last 70 years weaponizing our trauma, right? It becomes fodder for people who are not even Jewish to talk about. Son, you should keep Auschwitz all the way out your fucking mouth. I don't know why you thought you could bring it up, but like you calling Israel your princess is not the weirdest shit about your article. And that's an evangelical guy? Yep, that is Mike Evans. Fuck that guy. John Hagee and his millions of followers and perhaps millions of other people that are following him outside the U.S. are not just some wacky people that may end up voting for candidates who end up then espousing very pro-Israel policies. They're actually super intertwined with politicians themselves in the U.S. So whenever John Hagee and his Christians United for Israel group have their you know conferences, they will be attended by high-profile politicians like Former Vice President Mike Pence spoke at a Christians United for Israel event. Former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo spoke at a Christians United for Israel event. So these are ideologies that are being espoused by people that are at the highest levels of government. And it's really, really troubling. Our foreign policy in the United States is being driven by people who think that they have to support the creation of the Jewish state to bring about the rapture. This is not the way to determine foreign policy. I'm no like business entrepreneur, but if you think something is going to fail, why are you investing billions of dollars in it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. These people so- right now are trying across the country and actually across the world to pass anti-Semitism bills that adopt the IHRA definition of Mm -hmm. anti-Semitism, which actually conflates criticism of Israel with anti-Semitism. It's like a trap. It's a sick trap, I think, like on Jewish people itself. Like a hundred percent. And it doesn't even matter how Jewish you are, right? You'll see a lot of people, they'll be hesitant to criticize Israel and they'll always preface it with like their Jewish resume. I went to rabbinical college. I was, uh, you know, like I'm a full time, whatever. You can't just be like killing children is wrong. Mm-hmm. Right. You always have to say I'm not an anti-Semite, but it's like, what does yeah. this have to do with that? It's not related. And Zionists are actually eating their own right now. There's a liberal Zionist rabbi named Shira Stutman who said that the Israeli government, quote, categorically dismisses, discriminates, ethnically cleanses, and cares little for the basic human rights of millions of people that live under its administration. And then she had to apologize because there was an uproar from her congregation. Her own congregation 
accused the rabbi of disseminating, quote, the most despicable untruth that would, quote, provoke anti-Semites and, quote, gives them ammunition against Jews, not just in Washington, D.C., but everywhere. So it's like if you're Palestinian and they've called you an anti-Semite, remember, they went after their own congregation leader. You know what I mean? They probably called Mm -hmm. her a self-hating rabbi. If you contrast that with a rabbi retreat that held space for the next generation of Jews, a statement by a hundred or so rabbinical students said that American Jews should be in a spiritual crisis right now because of Israel's racist violence and apartheid. They said our charity funds a story we wish were true, but perpetuates a reality that is untenable and dangerous. Our political advocacy too often puts forth a narrative of victimization, but supports violent suppression of human rights and enables apartheid. Wow. I do research. (laughs) Let's turn to censorship. So one of the things that we have to deal with as Palestinians is censorship for merely telling our stories in the public space. Certainly the issue of censorship has been magnified with the latest round of colonial violence and the corresponding indigenous resistance with this global intifada that we are seeing now. And we on the Palestine pod have covered stories reported by The Intercept and Politico and other outlets confirming the Israeli government's interference with social media posts on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, anything really that supports the Palestinian narrative and experience. Accounts telling the Palestinian story have been erased entirely or threatened with erasure. Thousands of posts have been deleted. People have also been, you know, banned temporarily. And I myself have had the experience of having, you know, dozens and dozens of my own posts removed due to alleged quote unquote hate speech when those posts are simply showing some form of violence that is taking place against Palestinians. So this has been going on for years now. It's not new. Anwar, your sister Bella had the passport photo of your father removed from Instagram last year. It was removed and eventually it was restored due to public outcry. And the big thing was the passport showed that your father was born in 1948 in a place called Palestine. And, you know, even that is a threat. It's a threat to the Zionist narrative that there was a place called Palestine, that there were people there, that there were people who were born there, right? Can you guys, both of you, really just share if you've had any experience with censorship of your own posts? Have any of your own posts been taken down? What's your experience been like with that? Yeah, I just, a lot of random posts of mine will just like I'll just get a notification like this this post violates community guidelines, and it's literally literally nothing. But uh, especially the stuff with Palestine on my stories or or uh, on my on my page, I don't think that you know, like big tech or Mark Zuckerberg is after me. Like they saw it, like get that off. I think it's just a, a huge group of people who are just reporting it. And I think that, just, I think that the way the algorithm works is that once one post is reported enough times, they just get rid of it. I know that there's like think tanks and, and groups that literally their job is to do this because a couple of times, you know, last year I posted something that was shared a lot and it went viral and I just got spammed with with bots like Israeli flags and comments that were you know pre-written, but they were all bots. So that's coming from something that's heavily funded. It's a well-oiled machine. So, that's not to say that big tech isn't behind yeah. the Zionist you know project. I'm just saying for me, I don't think that I've, I'm at a level where that's what it is. I think that it's it's, it's because of uh, a heavily funded group of of people. Because yeah. you know, with the bots, so, you see it. 
there's reporting that came out recently that shows that Facebook and Instagram actually set up what are called fusion centers that collect all of the algorithmic data posted about any particular subject. And they employed people who spoke both Arabic and Hebrew in order to, quote, be ahead of the trend. So it absolutely is a collaboration between Zionists and big tech. And we also reported how there is a Zionist lawyer on the, quote, oversight board at Facebook, which also oversees its subsidiary companies like Instagram. She was a former Israeli government official, and she's on the oversight board of Facebook. But even beyond that, the the major issue lately has been the policing of the word Zionist itself, because Facebook has come out and said that they are treating any posts that target Zionists or Zionism as being anti-Semitic. Posts are actually being removed by big tech because of critiques, criticism towards Zionism. And that is the very intentional byproduct and result of all of the lobbying that the pro-Israel lobby has done in recent years to conflate Zionism with Judaism and to make any critique of Zionism therefore anti-Semitic and then subject to being categorized as hate speech and then being removed on that basis. Anwar, do you have anything you want to add? Have you have any of your posts been taken down? Because you go hard, actually. Like you post almost every day, you know, you're resharing things. Has anything that you've posted been removed? Yeah, definitely. Especially during this time, a lot of people were giving me messages that their their posts were just being completely censored where you have to like click see. It was information and it still it was being censored. Obviously it's understandable to, to put censoring on violent things like that, you know, for children or whatever it is, like on Instagram. But anything Palestinian, anything to do with Palestinian, anything to do with Zionism, anything to do with anything that was confrontational at all, it was just being censored. And sometimes even pictures of mine were being posted and they weren't coming up. Like, so people would like, uh, would, would be messaging me and I'd be posting pictures and it would just like stay at like a, a, yeah. a circle. Yeah, you were getting shadow banned. I mean, definitely you have a big audience. And, you know, the fact of the matter is like, yeah, you're sharing information. You're sharing facts about things that are happening, people that are getting kicked out of their houses, the yeah. number of political prisoners. You're sharing straight facts. I mean, these are things that you you can't debate. I mean, it's not commentary. It's just this is what's happening. This is what life is like under occupation. What you're describing, I mean, the fact that your posts would stay loading. I also had that myself with many of my own posts. A lot of people message me telling me that, they can't find my account unless they type in the exact name to the letter until the very end. Otherwise, it doesn't come up. They tell me that they like my post and then they go back and they check and it's unliked. So- See, I, I have felt that too. So, you know, if I post a picture of like Liddy, like me and my friends or something, you'll see like the amount of coverage. It goes through the system. Like if you post something that is digestible, it's able to go through the system perfectly. So you notice, for example, that when you post like a picture of your friends, you get a bunch of views. And then when you post anything political, you get way less views. Definitely. Yeah. Even on your stories, which shouldn't be the case because a story, people are just clicking through it. Yeah. People people don't realize that also there's a lot of connection with Zionism in brands and in all these type of things. You know, people are, are very like uh, easy to tell you to calm down, keep it quiet for a little bit, you know, in all types of businesses that also control America in my businesses and people would rather us be quiet to protect more people getting money and to protect businesses that we that people would like to work with have people pull a Mark Ruffalo you know what I'm saying to Bernie Sanders tone down your rhetoric right I'm really glad that you brought that up Anwar because I wanted to ask you if you have felt any pressure to stay silent outside of social media so I know you know you're doing your thing on social media but you're also involved in all of these different businesses. You're a musician, you're an entrepreneur, you have your jewelry line, right? You've got your music and, you know, 
I don't know if you're still modeling or not, but you you're you're kind of everywhere. So have you felt any pressure from the people that you're working with, the brands that you're associated with, to kind of cool it a little bit, you know, tone it down? <laughs> hey, and, and name names. No, <laughs> we don't want to get you. We don't want to cut off your livelihood, so you don't have to name names. Yeah, no. See, the thing about God it damn. is, I, I think I've been really blessed, and I've also been particular. I think in 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 ways, at least, of just being kind of vocal about the things that I, I, I do in the first place before I work with brands. So the brands that I do work with and that I have worked with, I think are respectful of that. And I think at this point, they fucking know what they, they have in store for them. I'm not a scary person. I'm pretty nice. You know what I'm saying? It's not that much to deal with. <laughs> you just want to exist as a Palestinian and tell your story and tell the story of your brothers and sisters in Palestine. Like Exactly. And, and people continue to weaponize words, people's emotions and stuff. Like, nah, we're fucking human beings. Some, some people are artists. Some people don't want to talk about this shit. Some people fucking like can't speak about it because they're fucking traumatized you amplify the people's voices that are experiencing this and have the strength to speak about it people are afraid of that in people so they so they will try to, to make you afraid of your own words and afraid of emotions in reality it's like that is not something that we should weaponize it's a common zionist technique to tell you that you don't understand what's going on in palestine you need a PhD, you you need to study the history of the Middle East for a thousand years before you can possibly have any sort of opinion. But the reality of the matter is, is what's happening in Palestine is land theft, it's ethnic cleansing, it's expulsion. And, you know, we're 13 million Palestinians all over the world. And just ask any one of us, get to know us, ask any one of us our stories, just ask us what happened to our grandparents. We'll tell you, you know, we'll tell you, we used to be in a place called Palestine and now we're not there anymore for a lot of us. And for the ones that are there, they live through hell. Their rights are violated on a daily basis. Um, our and children so know what's going on, you know? Imagine you're living in your house, right? And somebody comes in with a gun, kicks you out, and then the cops show up and they say, well, it's kind of complicated. For us here in America, like, you know, the, the funniest thing I've ever heard in my life, you know, people like to pink wash it here. It's like, what's well, the only country in the Middle East where people could be gay? It's like, have you ever, you ever heard of Saudi Arabia? We're not allowed to talk about Saudi Arabia because they're our ally. You hear all this stuff here. We went out there. We went out in, in, in Ramallah. We went out in all these places and there was gay people there. We were, you know, like having thriving. There's a gay bar in Ramallah. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like LGBT organizations that are Palestinian led and they do great work and. Yeah. But they're but they're totally erased, right? You know, because they they don't fit the Zionist narrative that, you know, Tel Aviv is the only place that you can live as a as a liberated gay. So come to the beach and have this, you know, in, enjoy this beach party. That's the thing. Anything that doesn't isn't consistent with their narrative, they immediately have to erase, which is why they don't want people speaking up, which is why they tell you that you have to have like 12 PhDs to understand and to be able to articulate anything about what's going on in Palestine. But the fact of the matter is, is that it's actually really simple. It's settler colonialism. And settler colonialism has been around for a long time. We have plenty of examples of it. The United States is the largest settler colony in the world. Canada is a settler colony. So is Australia. So is South Africa. I mean, we know what settler colonialism looks like. And the thing with Zionism is that they're trying to paint themselves as a special case. No, 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 we're not like that. No, you are like that. You're doing exactly everything that a settler colony does. You were even inspired by the European settler colonists that went to America. You learned from them. You even referred to yourself as colonists. In the early writings of all the Zionist leaders, they were very express and happy to refer to themselves as colonizing the land of Palestine. They were, they were unabashed. There was no question about this. And it is only in recent years that the rhetoric has been, you know, we've tried to glam it up a little bit. 
it, if you're a Zionist. I don't know. We can't, you know, we're not going to use the, the colonialism language anymore because turns out colonialism is an illegitimate system of governance. So we have to, you know, sort of backtrack and rewrite history. And so now what you see is all of these claims of, oh, well, Jews are indigenous to the land. You know, the thing, you know, what we talked about earlier. Oh, so if some Jews were here thousands of years ago, well, that means Jacob from Long Island can show up and expel every Palestinian. No, that's not how this works. This doesn't make sense. Your logic is absolutely baseless, right? It, that's the that's the thing with Zionist logic. It takes a logic and it flips it on its head. I mean, just look earlier today, following the the arrest of Muna and Muhammad al-Kurd, reports that they were being charged with incitement and a threat to public security. And you know, I'm just sitting here laughing, right? Because Zionism and occupation, they constantly are they're flipping logic on its head. Muna and Muhammad are a threat to public security because they are resisting the, their their imminent expulsion from their home. They are literally, as we speak, sharing their house with settler Jacob. He lives in their house. And they are the threat to public security when under international law, they have the right to resist an occupation's violence. They have every right to resist. They have every right to resist. And you know what? They haven't even taken up arms, which they do have the right to do. They are just using their voices to tell their story all over the world. And that is a threat to the peace. That is incitement. Like, why does Zionism not consider ethnic cleansing incitement? It is ethnic cleansing which is incitement. That is the original violence that we need to be talking about. Muna and Muhammad are simply reacting to the absurd situation that they have been put in. And they are not unique in that. Every Palestinian has been put in this situation. Every Palestinian at one point had their house taken over or completely destroyed. That's a fact. And Jacob the settler? should be glad that they chose the camera instead of the gun. <laughs> Fact. <laughs> Fact. People don't even understand anything about Middle Eastern culture. And they see that and they like equate Hamas with ISIS, which, by the way, has you know, ties to intelligence. There's churches in, in Gaza. Like if there's like five, six churches in Gaza. So if it was run by ISIS, yeah. you know, it'd be, they'd be decimated within the first, you know, as soon as they took power. And they don't even have power. They really don't run anything. Like Hamas doesn't control what goes in and out of Gaza. What does Hamas control? What does the PA control? Like they don't control, the entire thing is controlled by Israel. There's no such thing as like a real Palestinian government. They have no authority. It's easy for people to hear just to not care because as far as they're concerned, they just see like images of Hamas and it's like, well, they're radical Islamists. The exact same thing could be said about the Israeli government, right? They're radical terrorists that are hell-bent on bringing about a theocratic state, right? They are the Jewish ISIS. They rolled up with guns a hundred years ago after thousands of years of Judaism. And they're like, hey, check it out. We're actually the real Jews, y'all. Everybody who doesn't fuck with us, y'all not Jews anymore. That's debatable. Yeah, You've done a lot of research, Mike. You seem like a smart guy. How many times did uh, ISIS ever attack Israel? They worked together. <laughs> There's literal documents, enough proof that all you have to do is know how to read and see things with your eyes that the same terrorists who we were showing on the news in America, radical Islamic, ISIS, Al-Qaeda, Al-Nusra Front, were given treatment, hospital treatment in northern Israel. Like Benjamin Netanyahu holding the hand of one of the guys, like, you know, brushing his hair while he's on a hospital bed. There was an instance where there was a skirmish between Israeli forces and ISIS and an Israeli minister or somebody who works for the Israeli government said that he had back channels with the people from ISIS and they apologized and it was a mistake. But what he didn't realize is that he exposed that he has a back channel with someone from ISIS. Mm -hmm. And he people were like, people were like, you talk to ISIS regularly? Why the do you fuck? know those guys? 
Yeah, it's like you have them on speed dial. Why do you fuck with them? And even on top of it, too, it's like, all right, if we give them $3.8 billion a year, forget about the Palestinians for a second. Just when, like, at the height of, like, ISIS in our media, we're giving them $3.8 billion a year. They're 40 yards away. You want to, like, help out if, if they're such a threat to the United States, even though they're Oh, they killing, are. They are helping they're, out. They're buying them lots of guns yeah, is what they're doing. moderate rebels. And then John McCain went to take a picture with the Al-Nusra rebels in Syria. I want to get that buddy, frame buddy. in my room. Yeah, that's his boy. Those are his boys. And by the way, like when he made a secret trip to Syria and proposed arming the moderate rebels, there was like a signed letter from like, I think, uh, 33,000 Americans and most of them being veterans saying, can we not let him do this? This is a terrible, terrible idea. Like, what an insane colonial word, moderate rebel. What does that mean? Right? It's like, oh, this rebel just shoots sometimes. You yeah, know, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Two moron. A jumbo shrimp. We were talking earlier before we got on the podcast and you had posted a response to Meghan McCain's totally oh, meaningless yuck. I stand with Israel Instagram post. She's in it deep from all the way to the time of her, her grandfather. Her grandfather was when the USS Liberty incident happened, which was when Israel massacred uh, a United States Navy boat and killed Marines. You know, it was it was propped up at first as an accident. And to this day. There's a group of veterans that goes around to try and bring awareness about what happened that day because they're silenced incredibly. And one of the reasons they're silenced is because Meghan McCain's grandfather, who was tied up with Lyndon Johnson, made sure to cover it up, to like keep it on the hush because he didn't want to give bad press to our ally. And in terms of her, like, I will not be bullied into not standing against anti-Semitism. Like, OK, so wh wh why is your dad really good friends with John Hagee? Why did they run together? Like the news actually exposed that because he was running against Obama. And it wasn't about the anti-Semitic stuff. It was about the like the homophobia comments John John Hagee made that the media showed like, you know, this is John McCain's friend. But he said things like Jews came to America and put the, the Illuminati thing on the dollar because they created the money and they run the world. This is what he said in church. It's like this, this is a fervent anti-Semite. He's he said that Hitler was doing God's work in church. And it's like this is somebody who sits at your family's dinner table. So don't tell us about anti-Semitism. Don't tell us that like, you need to stand with Israel. It's like you don't stand with you don't stand with anything other than your own interest. There's a clip <laughs> of her crying on on the View, like hysterically crying when talking about yeah. Israel. And then she yeah. doesn't. She's like Mr. Netanyahu. She doesn't even know Netanyahu's <laughs> name. It's like you're you're that emotionally invested. You don't even know the prime minister's name. The prime minister at the time. Yeah, and I think she has to do that because of all the probably things that we don't know that her family's responsible for with the state of Israel. Like there's a few things that we do know already. And it's like USS Liberty, her dad with all these Syrian rebels, when the country, like the Congress veterans, uh, all these people were like, Hey, don't do that. You're not even the president. Why are you doing that? John McCain was talking about how the United States will be occupying the Middle East for the next hundred years. He said mm -hmm. it straight up. Yeah. He, he made no qualms about it. And he was all for taking out the seven countries. General Wesley Clark. Yeah, he did yeah. an interview with Amy Goodman where he talked about a Pentagon memo from Wolfowitz and Secretary Rumsfeld. They had no connection between 9-11 and Iraq, but they were going to take out seven countries in five years. Yeah, starting with Iraq and then it was like Sudan, Lebanon, um, Libya, Syria, Libya, yeah, Libya. And, and finishing off with Iran. Like they got every one of them except for Syria and Iran. Like that's the last two, and that's why we, you know we're, we're going to hear a lot about Syria these next four years, and Iran. Um, 
Yeah, of course, right. I mean, you've been hearing about that so much that Netanyahu would come in front of the UN with a, a picture like for a bunch of kindergartners of a big bomb. And it's like first stage, second stage, final stage. He's like, they're right here. They're at the final stage. Um, then Yahoo said in that testimony that he would like to see regime change in Iraq. This was before it happened. And in Iran, he said it plainly. He said, mm -hmm. it's not a matter of if, but when. He said, it's a matter of time, basically. Yeah. So let's turn to Israel's next prime minister, a settler leader, a guy who's famous for saying that he's killed a lot of Arabs in his life and there's nothing wrong with that. A guy whose family is from Berkeley in the United States and uh, settled in Israel. A guy who we know has participated in the Qana massacre of 1996, killed hundreds of Lebanese people in that massacre. A guy who vehemently opposes the creation of any Palestinian state. So I'd love to see how the U.S. is going to try to deal with this since the official U.S. position is that there should be a Palestinian state created on 22% of historic Palestine, uh, also known as the West Bank, East Jerusalem, and Gaza. How are they going to deal with a guy who expressly comes out and says, nah, I don't believe in any of that? A guy who believes in the annexation of uh, at least 60% of the West Bank formally. A guy who was raised by two UC Berkeley graduates and has boasted about how he had this liberal upbringing and was against the Vietnam War and his family protested at the time and you know instilled him with those values but also a guy who regularly cites to the Bible anytime he makes mainstream media appearances and says well the Bible says we should be here which by the way it also doesn't feel free to check out the clips <laughs> that I have posted on my page of Rabbi Shapiro totally dismantling that argument it's entirely baseless and not rooted actually in any of the scripture this guy is a mess uh, you know to put it plainly then can I get your impressions if i'm being honest i mean to me it's kind of i don't want to say a good thing because it's obviously not a good thing but it's it's finally like an honest review of what the country has been since 1948 it's like when trump got elected like i don't i don't think any american president is good so it's like this guy is the face of what this country has been for the for the since the founding of it I've always said, like, I'd have way more respect for the Israeli leaders, that, like, is, like, especially, you know, speaking at that time about Netanyahu, if he just was honest, like, was like, no, there's no such, there's never going to be a Palestinian state. You know, fuck you guys, basically. Like, he, but he, Netanyahu had a nice English accent. He knew how to placate so that the American people were like, mm, no, I, you know, I like him. This guy is just, he's up front. He's like, no, the Bible says this, no Palestinian state. I've killed a lot of Arabs and I enjoyed it. It's like, to me, it's like, well, thanks for being honest. He denies the Nakba entirely. He, he actually came out and said that no Palestinians have ever been uprooted by Zionists. It's like, mm, ask 8 million there's videos of it yeah, there's now. Videos so of like, it, dude. And ask 8 million Palestinians what the hell happened to their houses in Palestine. I mean, what? <laughs> so much trauma has happened since 1948. I don't think Naftali Bennett is going to come in and make it that much worse. It's happening every day. We're not going to, we can't pretend like this is going to be the guy who's, who's going to start doing what's been happening since 1948. The benefit to me is that Americans are going to be like, they're not going to relate to him the way, the, the way they related to Netanyahu. They're going to be like, this guy's a dick. That's not nice what he just said. You know, Netanyahu knew exactly what to say and how to say it. That's why I, I couldn't stand You know, Israel is the most moral country in the world, moral army. And Naftali Bennett's not even saying that they're a moral army. He's like, here we go. Like, no, no, we're getting this. We came here. We took it. You lost. We'll continue to do that. And if you have a problem, you're going to die. So it's like, thanks for saying that, because that's what it's been since 1948. He's just being honest about what this country's been since the beginning of it. And I think that because of what happened with Trump in this country, like the hyper awareness, the politics, that's going to start happening 
way more, not because of the Palestinian issue, because of how right wing and honest Israel is going to be. And America is going to go, maybe we shouldn't support that country. That guy's a dick like Trump. You know what I mean? It's like, but he was, it's like, this is what it is. This is what it's been. Yeah, I agree with you. It's like interacting with liberal Zionists versus regular Zionists online. Liberal Zionists will try and sell you this metropolis of coexistence. And then the other ones are just like, we got to nuke all Arabs. Yeah, like those are the ones I, and I don't want to say I like, but I, it's like, this is, <laughs> this is what it is. You know, so it's like, that's what the country is. It's not about the president. They're all lying. They're all lying. So it's like, wouldn't you rather the guy who's going to tell you exactly what's up or what's been happening? And it's like, that's what's happening with Tali Bennett. He's got, he makes no qualms about it. You know, as much as like, even with Rabin, like, you know, they may be peace, but he was like a quote unquote war criminal. Every single Israeli prime minister is responsible for killing and land theft. Some of them are masked, masked in like this beautiful, like relationship with the United States. And they knew how to talk. Like I'd rather Naftali Bennett be there from now until, you know, Palestine is free because this is what it is. It's Naftali Bennett. You just pretend he's been there since 1948. It's the same exact thing. I agree with you. It's finally, thank you. We're putting a face to Zionism and Zionism is Naftali Bennett. That's what Zionism is. Zionism is expelling Palestinians from their houses. Zionism is the dehumanization of Palestinians and Arabs more generally. Don't give a shit if we kill them. It doesn't actually fucking matter. You know, that's, that's, what, that's what Zionism is. Zionism is denying that you have done all of the above, saying, oh no, there was nobody here. We didn't kick anyone out. What are you talking about? Do, do you understand how many millions of Palestinians are still languishing in camps since 1948 that they have now lived in for three generations? What are you talking about? The Nakba is one of the most properly and deeply documented historical events the scholarship on it the, the first-hand accounts the people there are people who are still alive today that lived the nakba like what are you talking about it was the mass expulsion of the palestinian people from their homeland and we can't talk about it and it's still ongoing to this day it wasn't even just a one-time thing the entire plan of the state of israel is to carry out this ongoing Nakba until they rid all of historic Palestine of Palestinians, until they have 100% of the land. And now they've, they've achieved in getting 78% of the land when they set up their state, and they've achieved in occupying the remaining 22% of the land. Like, that is what Zionism has done. And that all of that was Palestine. Uh, to the Naftali Bennett thing, like him being Zionism, uh, that woman, Barry Weiss, admitted it. She was like, it's really terrible that a lot of the casualties in Gaza are, you know, innocent people and babies. But this is a, a byproduct of the political power of Zionism and the, the will of self-determination for a Jewish homeland. It's like, that's, that's the byproduct of you establishing your homeland. Well, thanks for admitting that. And that's not a nice thing. Like you said, I wouldn't want anything to do with me or my homeland for that to be the byproduct of. They'd be like, self-determination looks like murdering children indiscriminately. And she how, said it. She yeah. admitted it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And how beautiful is that? Like you, you must want self-determination so badly that you will kill children. Like that's her logic. And she thinks that it's going to be compelling to people. It's like, it's unfortunate, but it's like, Yuck. this is the byproduct of uh, political power and Zionism. It's just what happens. Like, Hey man, look, uh, I want to thank you guys for joining us. It was very enlightening and it was really our pleasure to have you both here on Marvin. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for supporting the Palestine pod. Well, yeah. Thanks for having us. We love you. We love you. Thank you guys. We so appreciate y'all. Appreciate your time. Thank y'all so much for listening to another episode of the Palestine pod. You can reach out to us at palestinepod at gmail.com. All of our sources will be uploaded on www.palestinepod.com. 
And you can follow us on Instagram at the Palestine Pod. We so appreciate you taking the time to listen to the podcast. Please leave us a review, like, subscribe, all that YouTube jazz. And we'll see you on another episode of the Palestine Pod. You hear that? The government's listening. <laughs> you gotta go. You gotta click on the the microphone bit and see where you're. Vin, Vin, we're over a year in a pandemic. You don't know how to use Zoom yet, my guy. <laughs> my guy, have you not been on any calls, my guy? I, you seem like he's, a busy enough person honestly, where you have calls. He's always on calls because every time he calls me, he's like, "I got a call." Mister El Curd called this an electronic war because the resistance that actually can't be ignored is international outcry. Mm. If you are outside of Palestine, please keep using social media to speak up. And I said, electronic Intifada and the Palestine pod reporting for duty. Yeah. Hell yes. Anwar coming from the set of Game of Thrones. That's what's <laughs> up.